Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly. I'm the editor-at-large at Sports Pro. Hope you're well. Very happy to be back with you. Very happy to be able to welcome back once again Sports Pro Managing Director Nick Meacham. Hello, Nick. Hello, Owen. Great to, to be back. Never seems like there's a dull day in our industry right now. So uh, good to catch up and chat, chat things through. Yeah, very much so. Uh, we were going to talk about one big media story. We're now talking about two big media stories, at least um, over the course of this podcast. And to help us through some of the questions around that, we have Ampere Analysis Principal Analyst, Tony Marulunis. Hello, Tony. Hi, Owen. Nice to be here. Great to have you with us. Well, I mean, when we convened this recording, we were keen to talk about uh, the Premier League media rights renewals here in the UK, basically rolling over the domestic rights deals they signed in 2018 to take them through another three-year period. We are going to talk about that at the top of the podcast. We are also going to talk about the implications of some very, very big news in the world of media, the merger between Warner Media, currently owned by AT&T, and Discovery, uh, two very big companies creating a very, very big company, and some other kind of conglomeration and accretion and aggregation going on um, across the world of of, uh, legacy media as it moves into the digital age in a meaningful way. Um, What all that's going to mean for distribution, what all that's going to mean for the way people watch and pay for content, and what that's going to mean ultimately uh, for the sports rights market. But all that's to come. Um, first of all, Nick, we have the Premier League rights deals here in the UK. This has been welcomed as, as a pretty shrewd bit of business from the Premier League, keeping uh, Amazon, BT Sport, on whom a bit more later as well, and Sky Sports on board um, from, what is it, 22 to 25. And... Yeah, retaining that value at a point, you know, particularly after the pandemic, where there's there's been a bit of a loss of confidence elsewhere in the market. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a huge achievement for the Premier League to pull this off. Not just because they've been able to maintain the the values that they have, but also politically being able to to navigate um, the relationships with so many different stakeholders, whether they're government or whether it is the the broadcasters that have secured rights, and also prospective other broadcasters who may have been interested or will be interested in the future to, to pull this deal off. Um, uh, a deal of the same um, is, is is a pretty incredible, uh, I think, achievement. Um, and to pull it off with relatively few, uh, I guess, um, challenge. Well, it looks like from outside in, very few challenges or, or negatives being thrown, th- th- thrown at them through the mainstream media. I think for me, the, the question mark really is what does... What do things look like in, in three years' time? They've bought themselves some time now to, to get their, their ship in order, hope the market resets, and hopefully, from their point of view, set themselves up in a position where uh, they can be best placed to either A, see another rise in media rights again, or look at pushing what I think they will look to do, some major changes in the way they currently have their rights structured, you know, whether that is restructuring the current rights packages, whether it is pushing and lobbying for the 3pm 
blackout to be removed or altered, um, and also the opportunity for other players in the market to potentially develop and be mature enough to to start bidding. So uh, a good achievement for them to to get this over the line and keep the, the, level, the level of revenues the way they have and navigate that landscape, but also this really sets themselves up to give themselves a bit of time to get themselves in the best position possible three years from now as well. Yeah, I mean, the one significant uh, change of note was there is an extra 100 million that's been set aside for, um, for, for EFL clubs to share among their number, which is a relatively small amount of money for those 72 teams, but, um, but, but better than nothing, I suppose. The EFL would like that to go further perhaps next time. And they did issue a statement um, saying that they would have quite appreciated the opportunity to, to perhaps renegotiate the way in which those funds are distributed. Um, but as you say, bringing a lot of other stakeholders together at a point where it's been challenging for Syria to agree a deal they eventually did with the zone, but certainly there wasn't a hell of a lot of, um, you know, there, there was the threat of a bit of discord there. Uh, and of course, in France, the situation has been a little bit more concerning with the collapse of their partnership with Media Pro. Tony, I wanted to bring you in here. Just looking at the numbers, what kind of value does this represent for the Premier League? I mean, it is a bit of an outlier when it comes to European football more generally. And of course, it probably two cycles ago went way, way ahead when the kind of the competition between Sky Sports and BT Sport was at its peak and it it seemed to manipulate those conditions to such a great extent that you know the, the market has almost not caught up uh to the value that it got when was that 2015 when it uh when it made its its really big leap in right sales what, what kind of positions do you think this puts them in yeah i mean in general i think that the premier league this deal with the premier league and the broadcasters is actually quite beneficial for both sides really i mean you have a a growing threat to some extent from ott sports players eyeing up some of these premium tier sports rights across europe so obviously you kind of mentioned the zone in italy buying syria and obviously that caused some significant shifts i think on top of that if you you know layer in the i guess the threat to some extent because it never really materialized of the european super league um, it's really quite important for the Premier League to secure their broadcasting rights and also to some extent secure those budgets, right? Again, we don't really know what the what the exact deals were or what discussions were made, but obviously being able to go in and say, look, like realistically, uh, are the rights values going to shoot up the same way they did two cycles ago? You know, probably not. As you say, that was quite an outlier. I mean, even from our own research, they're, they're probably at the right um, at the right value right now, possibly a little bit overvalued, but generally speaking, in the right sort of area compared to other uh, European leagues. Uh, but by extending the current deal, again, for the Premier League, all the sports have been under immense financial pressure because of COVID. So by securing this, you know, keeping the process short, um, they've managed to basically ensure a, a steady supply of, of income to them. Over, over the next three years, they don't really have to find themselves in really financial difficulty. And while they, and then whether it's steadying the ship or finding new sources of income. On the other side, from, you know, from Sky, from BTs, from Amazon's perspective, of course, they would love to pay less. But then there's always a risk when you go to market that someone else might come in, outbid them, prices go up. So they get the certainty too. 
So while while kind of it's been maybe like a snooze button to some extent on something that might come in the future that might be a greater of greater impact, but in the meantime, you know they get the content, they get the you know the Premier League gets access to all the Sky Sports subscribers, you know Sky Sports, BT Sports, even Amazon to some extent gets the the content uh, and the the matches that they want uh, for Amazon, particularly around Christmas, without any additional stress and without any uh, potentially newcomers coming in and um, and stealing their their position to some extent. I mean, four point seven billion across those three years. What, whereabouts does that peg with, with where you would put it? I mean, it's really difficult to speculate. It's, it's whatever people are willing to pay for it, right? I mean, to some extent, we're always seeing the TV uh, revenues getting squeezed. Obviously, TV advertising revenues, as viewing heads away from it, are always going to go down somewhat. So you know, the the broadcasters and the pay tv players to some extent as well are feeling the pressure um so there's only so it's not like a bottomless pit of money that they can keep digging into to get the you know, to keep funding the the premier rights uh but you know i mean as as i said like it, it's in three years time who knows what it's going to be like you know maybe there'll be someone like a much larger tech player will come in and or amazon decides to buy a greater portion of the rights if they find them to be particularly successful so it's very difficult to say because it's always uh, the value is always relative i suppose how much do we think, guys, and um, Nick, I'll come back to you first. How much do we think this is a, a wait-and-see situation? Do we, is there enough data out there at the moment to really understand how live football, live sport are going to be monetized in in the mid-2020s, which is where this gets us to? Or are we still going to be in a transitional phase at that point? I, I feel like we're still be we will still be in a transitional phase, but as we've seen in in the US, and the US is always a a bit of a barometer for what the European markets should keep an eye out for, and the the proliferation and the acceleration of how streaming and OTT is taking hold and being adopted is, I think, what we, we've got to keep an eye out for. Now we haven't seen a big major OTT player come in to to, to make a bid because they. Whether or not they were allowed to, I'm not sure. Those conversations were clearly had, but I'm sure in three years' time, I, I can only imagine you. The if you, well, depending on who's around the corner, the zones, the Disney Pluses, the now Discoveries, etc., will all be very keen to have those conversations because adoption of OTT and streaming will be much more mature, uh, and so the ability to make you know make buying premium rights like the Premier League count. Are just going to be more, more worthwhile than it will be today. So I think that's it's still going to be a, a I, I feel like we're still a, a quite a number of years away until OTT and streaming is adopted to the scale um, that makes it, I guess, a no brainer for a multitude of streamers to come streaming platforms to come into the market and start actively legitimately bidding for Premier League rights. But we're not too far away. And also what it could do is obviously open the door for the Premier League to consider launching its own OTT platform. Uh, I know that's always been talked about for some time. But again, I think once adoption of OTT and streaming as a, a legitimate platform for the mainstream to to consume, um, you know, SVOD uh, sort of offerings comes to a point where the Premier League feels ready to make that shift and, and press the button, they do it, it'll, and, it'll, and pretty quickly there'll be a serious adoption taken up, um, whether that is in three years' time or whether in six or so forth, that remains to be seen. Tony, where, how would you characterise this stopgap? What what are they waiting to see in the market? What, what conditions are we going to see developing over the next three years? Is it purely the players who are involved? Will there be a, 
a particularly big shift in terms of behavior and, uh, and, and where the value is in the marketplace? Yeah, I mean, I think Nick's point is very good in terms of the, the US is always kind of a, a barometer to some extent of what's to come, as, a, as you kind of mentioned. And what we did see in the most recent rights, obviously, we saw a huge increase in the value of um, the top uh, most popular US sports like, you know, the NFL, uh, MLB and a few others. Um, and what's interesting about that is that part of the reason why the values went up so much, obviously, because the deals are much longer. So they haven't had the, I guess, the, the reset cycles to um, to get to the, the level that they should be at or they feel that they should be at. Uh, but the other reason that's quite interesting is because uh, they, they, a lot of the rights deals right now are including the digital digital rights within the deal that they've signed. So at the, we've seen that almost all the major OTT services in the US are planning some sort of sports broadcast. So whether it's Disney Plus through ESPN, HBO Max was talking about adding some stuff on, uh, Peacock as well. There, there's a there's definitely a shift to including more sports content on OTT players, and obviously these are the, these are very well funded OTT players from the United States. They can probably afford these these rights. Um, are we going to see something similar in, in the in Europe? It's a little bit more difficult to say just because the the European market is much more fragmented, and the individual OTT players might just not have deep enough pockets to do that. But again, we'll we'll see. I guess in three years' time, where how much the 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 needle has shifted. You know, it could be by that point that some of the pay TV players shift much more to OTT and the hands have deeper pockets to do that. So it'll be definitely be interesting to see. Yeah, and there's a bigger point here, which um, which we'll get to in just a sec about the balance between those three year cycles and and the the 10, 12 year deals that, that the US major leagues are able to sign domestically. But where does this leave the Premier League in terms of what it's going to try and do overseas? It started uh, last year, it signed a, a couple of, of major renewals in international territories. The growth in its last round of right sales exclusively came from overseas sales because even though uh, it was a different sales process and, and a different outcome in terms of the who, who ended up buying rights last time because, because of Amazon's entry, it was similar or slightly lower, I think, in fact, in terms of the, the yield domestically and, and, and what they what those rights sold for so what do we think tony about where they're going to try and 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 see some growth internationally and how they're going to go about that when they're when they're not bound by eu competition law or the remnants of that and where they might be able to to do things differently is there an opportunity for them there to look for a long-term partner in a, in a key territory or does that cut across what they're trying to do what their sales teams are trying to do in other markets. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely speculative to answer this, but... Um, it's a podcast. <laughs> it's definitely true that the international markets are, are definitely a key growth area for them. Obviously, you know, you see massive growth in the Asia-Pacific region, huge economic development over there, and also a lot of interest in a lot of these Premier League clubs. I think a lot of the initiatives that they've done recently, like, for example, including the nationalities of the players when they introduce them on uh, on the... I guess the match uh, sheet when they when they show it before the games, that obviously is designed to attract more of an international audience. So wherever there's players from uh, those countries, obviously you you expect interest to shoot up somewhat. Um, so it could be that you know even parts of sub-Saharan Africa at some point might become uh, somewhat of a you know a growth area, albeit still relatively small. Parts of you know uh, Latin America even potentially, uh, but yeah, they're definitely they're always looking globally to see where else they can monetize their content. And and do we think? I don't know enough about competition law and and the ways in which it's challenged and the ways in which it evolves to to give a particularly firm perspective on this. But 
do we think that there will come any pressure on the existence of this of the, of the three year cycle in um in European sport um or are there still benefits to it in better times perhaps and and being able to refresh and and so forth that perhaps we'll see something like it persist through the next decade or so yeah i would say look i think if you took a step back and say who does the 3 year cycle benefit it benefits the rights holder it benefits competition a bit, but actually all it does is just drive prices up and drives up a bidding war every three years. The fans do not benefit from it, especially in this new era of fragmented rights and fragmented deals being done, where rights are just being broadcast on all sorts of different platforms. The fan doesn't know where to go half the time if they want to watch their favourite team play because it could be on any one of three platforms in this country or, or more in others. So the, lo- the longer cycles will ultimately benefit, I think, the fan. It will benefit the rights holder to have the security of the money in place if the demand for the rights aren't to the peak they were, say, several years ago. And ultimately, the security should be enough to keep everyone happy and everyone can build a business around it. The, the case has always been when you've got to buy tier one rights that are typically quote-unquote loss-making, but you're building it, buying it as part of a bigger catalogue to attract subscribers. If you have to build a strong, successful business in three years, typically it's going to take you two and a half, three years at least to get up to a maturation point where it starts to pay off. If someone, if that comes to a point, if I was if I was going to looking to build a business around this and I knew that there was a risk in three years, I could completely lose the heart and soul of my offering there's incentives not really there for others to come into the market. But if I've got seven or eight years to do so, then then I, I'm going to be much more interested. So, yeah, I'm not sure about the competition law side of things, but I think it can only really benefit um, everyone, really, um, to, to go for the longer-term packages. Also, with the transition and the transformation of consumption happening right now is you've got someone like, let's say, a Sky Sports who can ramp up their scale, the scale up their streaming and OTT services as adoption comes up and and moves more into that 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 direction. So they have the flexibility to sort of ride the wave where they won't get hamstrung if OTT becomes a more prominent uh, property and they're still stuck in their old traditional ways. So I think it's inevitable. I don't know how they're going to overcome it because if it's if it's in law, then. I don't know. That doesn't sound like an easy thing just to get sorted out overnight. So, but I, I imagine again with Premier League's perspective, they now have time to push that agenda and see where it goes. Yeah, and it's interesting to look at the way Sky Sports specifically have built relationships with uh, with their key rights holders in in this country with the Premier League, and to a lesser extent the the likes of ECB, where they've had these very long relationships and they have some confidence that they're going to be able to renew because basically because they are now unchallenged as the market leader at this point in time but perhaps there would be others who would like to replicate that i mean tony what what does the what does the market tell you in terms of how broadcasters would respond to that sort of uh, of a development to a change in in that particular area yeah i mean i think that some broadcasters would probably welcome it as as nick pointed out like obviously it allows you to commit a lot more to uh, to the development of the program, the, the, you know, the, even if it is just the studios, the, the, the talent you recruit, the, the contracts you can give them, um, it can generally, you know, as and to some extent, fragmentation is a big problem uh, if you are a Premier League fan and you want to watch your team. 
yeah, the fact that you have to subscribe to possibly three services to watch any of the games that are televised, you know, it's it's a big it's a bit of a problem. Um, we're seeing a, like some of this stuff changing to some extent, but it's never quite it's not quite yet at the tier one level. So, to some extent, what we we've seen that with um, with Nordic Entertainment's Viaplay, um, what they're trying to do, for example, with Bundesliga and such in new markets, just Poland, but they've secured some pretty long term deals. I guess the you know the it's 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 about if 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 you're a new entrant, you need that anchor. You need that that something to pull your subscribers in, and then obviously build the rest of your content around it. Without that, it's uh, again you, you, it could, the rug could be pulled out pulled out under you from what you're trying to offer your customers. So it's definitely beneficial for the broadcasters for sure. One element of the Premier League rights sale process that leads us into uh, our bigger topic or our other big topic for for this podcast. Um, if we are going to see a new entrant, it's probably going to be because they will have bought a chunk of BT's sport business. Tony, what was your reaction? We, we spoke to, to Min Almoda when just after Sports Pro Live when this news broke. Um, we spoke to your colleague, Minal, and that it was much fresher news. It, it emerged pretty much overnight at that point. What are we seeing here? What what's um Has this been... A long time coming is this uh, a sign of broader trends in the market what's behind bt's exit or partial exit and yeah what does it tell us about things more broadly i think fundamentally there's a uh, there's a bit of a i don't want to say quite a disconnect but a bit of a, a mismatch for lack of a better word between the the increase in content costs when it comes to sports rights or you know other content that you know tv op- tv operators need to buy in order to produce a an, an appealing content slate and that doesn't necessarily marry up with how quickly the revenues are growing for them whether that be their telecoms revenues or the tv revenues so in the case of bt specifically obviously they're a telecoms operator first and just from looking at you know some of the like as broader trends um telecoms revenues have not or you know broadly the whole telecoms revenue hasn't gone up as quickly as content costs have and content costs are are always in, increasing a lot faster than what the companies can make. So what that means is basically you're either putting more of your budget towards these um, these expensive content rights to secure the uh, or keep the business afloat, or you have to cut them and place the, the priorities elsewhere. I think with BT in particular, particularly from a telecom side, um, there's a big push right now to develop a 5G network. The government's pushing for you know, full fiber deployment around the country. These are additional costs. And perhaps one of the easiest way to cut costs elsewhere in order to fund these projects is to cut out the sports rights, which are generally a quite a significant chunk of the um, of the cost of their, their current of their content costs in terms of sports. So that could be definitely a factor, uh, a significant factor with what, what they considered when they, I guess, indicated that BT sports could be something that they they slowly phase out. The other side of this is who comes in. I mean, do we, uh, we would expect, I guess, it will be a, a media company. It'll be a content company of some description. Yeah, I mean, again, it it could be anyone really. I mean, it could even who knows? It could be, it could be you know, Amazon could decide to buy it and expand their their thing. Maybe Apple will join because um, you know they they do have a lot of you know they sit on a lot of cash that they could potentially spend. Is it likely that they do it? I mean, I'm, I think it's probably a little bit early for someone like Apple to look at sports, uh, but it doesn't mean that it's not possible. Uh, I think if it was to be another TV player, obviously some people have speculated that it could be ITV, and in which case you could see. Uh, Premier League return to free to air again. 
it could be potentially someone even like Dazun coming in and buying BT Sports. Again, it's a, there's, some, there's a lot of possibilities, and I'm sure that BT is talking to all of them. Help us spread the word about the Sports Pro podcast. Subscribe, like, and share our content on social. Join the conversation on Twitter with the hashtag SportsProPod. And if you're enjoying our work, why not leave us a rating and a nice review on your podcast platform of choice? And if you want to get in touch, you can send us an email, podcast at sportspromedia.com. The Sports Pro Podcast, we're listening to. Where this leads us to, big telecoms groups selling up or, or restructuring their commitments in, in media, uh, AT&T choosing to merge its Warner Media Group or its Warner Media Assets with Discovery. Nick, what was your reaction when you saw that news? There are there are sports brands in those portfolios. There there may be two or three lines down, um, just reminding us all of our place in the order of things. But it was it's it's a pretty extraordinary development, uh, a merger at that scale. Yeah, I mean, wow. I, I think I don't know in terms of where they actually fit in the pecking order of mergers over the years, but. I think it's got to be right up there with one of the biggest in the broadcast space that I can think of. And and actually the one before that is probably the ATP, AT&T Warner Media um, one beforehand, which was, I think, 80 odd billion dollars uh, as well. And I, I remember we were over actually at the Turner Sports um, Studios in Atlanta a little over 12 months ago, and they were just in this transition phase, rebranding all the Turner stuff to Warner Media. And now they've got to go go and do it all over again. Um, so quite a crazy time uh, in those respective businesses, even up until this merger point. Um, but I mean, this has huge, huge repercussions. And I think what's quite interesting to see, obviously, these, these businesses or these organizations have such strong US roots. The, the thing for me is what impact is it going to have internationally? What does it mean for other markets where they don't have a foothold or, or a position yet? Obviously, Discovery has been rolling out its Discovery Plus option uh, since I think it was January this year. They're about to to launch a sports offering uh, with the Olympics coming up as a the, sort of kicking off point. And what does it mean for all the rest of the AT Team Warner Media business and you know things like HBO Max and whether or not that's going to be expanding out into new markets? So there's a lot of question marks, but what it means really is other markets. I think will will start getting more of what they're serving in the US um, as they have such a, a huge catalog of content. And I think they've sprouted out the number that they're going to be spending something like $20 billion a year on original content or on content moving forward, which is more than Netflix, which is, I think, an important line for them to have in their press release. So um, yeah, a huge transformational moment to build one of, if not the bigger, biggest broadcast players in the marketplace full stop. Yeah, so we, there's lots that we don't know, as you say. We don't know anything about the branding and what they're going to be scrubbing off or uh, painting onto those walls um, at the Turner Sports Studios. And neither do they, apparently, from the from the press <laughs> from the session, the press conference. Yeah, but but we do know that that some some of those discussions have been happening. What we what we know uh, in concrete terms is that this deal uh, will be structured as an all stock reverse Morris Trust transaction. Uh, AT&T receiving $43 billion in a combination of cash, debt, securities and Warner Media's retention of certain debt. AT&T shareholders will get 71% of the new company. Discovery will get 29% of the new company. But what th- th- there's two things that are, that are quite telling about the deal kind of 
David Zaslav is going to take over, and Discovery has been on this uh, accumulation path for for some time. Tony, they bought Eurosport, obviously. I think back in twenty fourteen, they completed uh, that takeover. I could be wrong, but it was a, it was a kind of two part process. Uh, they also bought scripts a couple of years ago to become the biggest unscripted entertainment. I can't remember their exact positioning, but it's. Uh, you know, documentaries and reality TV and sports is the, is the area where they, they see themselves leading. Um, and then you have a very diversified media business with Warner. This is definitely part of a trend, though, Tony, this um, this aggregation of, of big media companies. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that, again, it's it just comes down to, I guess, the shift from, I guess, a more TV-centric to a more OTT-centric space. And to some extent, scale really matters because you have new OTT players that are come out of nowhere and they're you know serious competitors for all these companies. So inevitably, you're going to see consolidation in the market as the media players uh, you know need to find uh, the scale to compete to some extent. And with Discovery and uh, Warner Media, it's uh, it's quite an interesting one because they're they're not necessarily direct competitors. They're quite um, complementary to some extent. And as um, as Nick alluded to, obviously their content spend is likely to exceed uh, what Netflix is, is spending every year. But crucially, it won't necessarily be the biggest player. Like Disney's still bigger, you know. Uh, a hypothetical Comcast, Viacom, CBS, you know, joint merged entity would be even bigger. So they're they're not going to be like the largest, you know. Uh, fish in the sea, so to speak, but it does mean that they have a lot more. They're sitting on a lot more content, and to some extent, especially when we're going through a transition period, it might be quite important for them to have scale. And when they negotiate with the TV players for the, you know, the um, the renewals of um, you know retransmission fees or whatever, because as the market becomes smaller, obviously the, they're going to want to pay less. But if they hold all the all the channels or the content, then they hold a much stronger negotiating position. And yeah, it it is it is obviously perhaps a bit of a more difficult situation for the platforms but ultimately for the for these guys they need to they need the scale to ensure their survival to some extent and that that comes to bear in in a couple of ways one being the acquisition of content or the spend on original content or rights which we will we'll get to in in just a sec um, and the other is the potentially loss making position that new digital services are going to put organizations in i mean you have to spend a lot of money to get to the point where disney have got you know to to create a a, a subscription proposition that is attractive enough to however many tens of millions of people they've now got disney plus out to yeah you've got to be able to to find resources to to support that kind of development yeah absolutely and um yeah it 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 is ultimately as you mentioned a very challenging business to be in because a lot of these large tech companies that are looking to expand into this space, they're not looking to make an absolute profit from operating in the video space, which makes it very difficult for those companies that do need to make a profit to operate. So, you know, when you think of someone like arguably like Apple or Amazon, um, their primary source of income is not from their video, you know, it's from their e-commerce or it's from their device sales. And when you have to compete with someone like that, it makes it a lot more difficult. Hence why the, um, the scale and the negotiating position matters so much more because if you sit on a ton of content and you have a much stronger position in the market, you can secure yourself a much uh, neater and a more generous size of the pie uh, to to ensure that you can uh, you know do well in the future. And I guess Nick, the two things that that this perhaps indicates: one is maybe less of a fear of monopolistic practices being uh, being challenged, given that these companies will point to the fact that. Netflix is a uh, is is a, a unique player in the space that they've got to compete with, and and the other is 
the need to in the in in a digital era to achieve more of a global scale um and we've talked about apple and what their entry to sport might look like but you would imagine it would be it would be pretty international in its in its scope would you say that's fair that these are the other challenges that that these groups have got to think about yeah i mean that's always going to be a question mark on these types of deals at this scale but i think what this sort of deal does and what they will point to is the global opportunities that these 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 broadcasters are really going to scratch the surface on growing outside of the US market uh, and so I think quite easily they'll be able to say we're only we're only an entry player in a lot of new markets so despite being the scale that this deal is outside of the US it's still only uh, it's only early days for a lot of them and the consolidation is essential to be able to compete with the likes of a Netflix and others in those respective um, domestic markets. And and quite frankly, again, I, I mentioned it earlier, but I think consolidation, well, I said fra- fragmentation is not a good thing for fans and consumers, but consolidation will be. If, as, a, as a consumer, you want to know where you want to go for content. And if the, these, these guys all start consolidating what they're doing, I think that's only going to make consumers happier um that they know where to go to to watch their favorite tv show and favorite uh favorite live sports content etc so i think it's 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 a great thing for everyone involved to see these types of deals happening and i'd expect that we will start to see probably more to happen i don't know why a business of this scale will stop here um you know there's every chance that they could continue to um, to merge and find other media businesses to bring in and maybe again it's it's always these what ifs but Maybe this is the opportunity that someone like Edizone would 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 relish because they would plug into this sort of dynamic and model really, really well, particularly if these businesses are looking to grow in non-US markets because obviously DAZN's marketplace isn't uh, strong and DAZN has been positioning themselves for um, most people are expecting them to either SPAC or try and go public in the coming months, years, et cetera. So who knows, that sort of thing could be uh, on the horizon as well. And this... This rolling up, Tony, of, of media companies, it's been happening for a while. Disney, as you said, became an enormous, I mean, they, they were always a, a huge entertainment group, but, you know, they bought assets from Lucasfilm and uh, and Marvel and then subsequently Fox and, uh, and on and on they've gone. See, their operations in India are now pretty substantial. Um, we've seen Comcast buying Sky. We've seen just this week, a couple of other reports coming out on the entertainment side, um, Amazon buying MGM or being in talks to buy MGM for $9 billion. Uh, and in France, uh, TFN and M6 or TF1 and M6 for our English speaking audience, uh, looking to, to create a $4 billion merger, 3.4 billion euro merger. Where are the limits to this? What What's, um, you know, Nick has talked about the benefits from a consumer perspective, but where are, where are some of the risks in uh, in this kind of accumulation? Yeah, I mean, of course, there's there's always going to be associated risks, and there's always going to be you know prices that are simply too much to pay. I mean, earlier this year, uh, there was r- rumors going around that MGM w- was uh, trying to sell itself to Apple for five billion, and the fact to see now that you know they're they're now going to sell themselves to uh, Amazon for nearly double that, you know, just really goes to show you how valuable intellectual property is, and particularly, you know, the 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 really popular content that uh, that's available through each one of these studios. Um, in terms of, I guess, the you know where the limit is in terms of how much they can uh, they can keep merging. I mean, you know, you you ultimately still need a couple of players in the market. You can't have the ultimate consolidation. But uh, as as kind of alluded to, as everything shifts to more being more online based, more 
OTT based, um, you could argue that the TV players, are, it's naturally going to be, there's going to be fewer of them. And it might be enough that, uh, for example, there'll be just one or two uh, major commercial broadcasters in the, in the nation. And then that'll be fine. Uh, but again, it's a, it, it really depends. In, in France, TV advertising revenues haven't had haven't been ad, as pressured as they have been in other countries. Um, so we've actually seen them grow up until you know the pandemic hit, um, albeit it was very modest growth. They weren't you know they weren't declining. So, so in some countries that's still you know a viable business and they're still doing well. But obviously the fact that they're not growing quite as quickly as the content costs are or the inflation of the content costs are due to OTT means that inevitably they need to merge, optimize their costs, and ultimately be able to put more of that towards uh, you know, new content, original content, and things that will ultimately attract viewers. Let's talk a bit about um, what this means for rights holders, what it means for the sports businesses within this merger, first of all, this um, AT&T, WarnerMedia, and um, Discovery merger. And then just to wrap up, looking at the picture for, for rights holders more generally, there are mostly american businesses as you said nick in on the the warner side looking at tnt turner sports and then on the discovery side it's mostly outside the us eurosport and golf tv um which is while it's a global service is is a mostly you know mostly external to the us because the key rights are, are owned by a different player there what are your thoughts? I mean, we we don't know very much and we're certainly not going to be told very much at this stage about uh, about what the play would be on the sports side here, but but what was what was your reaction in in that respect? Well, looking at some of the businesses within, say, Warner Media, they've obviously got Turner Sports, who have a host of major sports rights. You know, they run uh, platforms. I think like they run the NBA's platform. They have Bleacher Report. They have uh, they run uh, NCAA.com, NBA.com. They have web, other websites that they run for sports properties. They're one of the major, I would say, players in the sports marketplace. And again, integrating Turner Sports into the, you know, the HBO Max or Discovery op- offering more, more deeply, again, will add a lot more value for subscribers potentially to be attracted to it. Um, but I think more widely, I mean, what... It opens the opportunity. The biggest challenge, I think, for sports is you always hear, we always want to see those global deals being done for sports rights. And quite frankly, they're just never achievable because of the fragmentation of sports rights. Market by market, deals are done. And to wrap up all of those deals is near on impossible um, in the short term. The best example of that is Golf TV, where the PGA Tour did that landmark deal with Discovery uh, and also European Tour was involved with that for over a billion dollars to to ingest all of the media rights outside of the US and they could either sub-license those rights in those markets or bring them into the Golf TV platform. This just gives them a further opportunity to, if that model is something that they believe in, then the opportunity is that they could absolutely look to replicate that for other sports properties particularly ones that have a global footprint or global reach. You know, tennis could be an obvious example, could be with Formula One. Uh, who knows? There's, there's plenty out there. Um, so I, I like the opportunity that having a truly global kind of media player, once as, as discoveries, tentacles and, and subscribers internationalize and globalize, um, what it could be as a platform for sports to be able to finally find a, a global international home that actually is legitimate, and not just a, a fragmented approach in the rights. <laughs> Pardon me. 
So, yeah, I that, think that for me is the, the, perhaps the most exciting thing to to, to see if that, if that does come to fruition. Just to pick up on that, I mean, the, the, the two biggest deals, I suppose, that are affected by this, but that could have some, where well, there could be some interesting implications on distribution and on the uh, on the original programming side and, and all sorts of other things. Uh, the NBA deal with Turner, it, it's approaching its renewal point, but that was a very long-term deal uh, of 12 years signed in, in the mid-2010s. And the Discovery deal, Tony, with the IOC for the Olympic Games is the one that looks most different from the rest, I guess, in uh, in terms of what's in Warner Media's wheelhouse historically uh, and the kinds of deals that they're used to doing because you know discovery made a lot of their money on that deal or have made a lot of their money on that deal so far by sub licensing rights to free to air players in in the um in the territories involved they've not shown very much at the olympics yet because we've only had one and one was delayed but we you know i'm sure there is a a longer term content play that involves all of their other uh, all of their other platforms and the other routes they have to an audience but what what do you think what, what's the future of that deal look like yeah i mean i think you really hit like you know you really brought up a very good point there which is that even though discovery did have a global rights to the olympics they still ended up sublicensing a lot of the content and part of the reason is because you know not not every single the, the sports preferences between the various countries vary greatly you know in some countries this as particular sport will be by far the most popular in other parts it won't be and so you know for someone to go in and spend you know a very large amount of money for a global play hoping that i don't know everyone's going to enjoy watching american football you know they might struggle to to sell their service in europe obviously there's still you know some dedicated american football fans in the in the european continent uh but it's never going to be a mass market play the way for example a Premier League OTT service would be in the UK. And that's kind of the, the fundamental problem. Like you can get the global rights, but ultimately unless it, that those rights tend to be perhaps the slightly more niche or perhaps the less, slightly less popular sports where there is a strong passionate base and that is willing to pay. So, you know, something like, you know, some of the martial arts that the Zun has secured, that really makes a lot of sense. You know, the Olympics, you could argue, is one of the most international competitions. But even with the Olympics, they still sub-licensed it to make more money out of it. And ultimately, I think that's kind of really summarizes that the, the problem, really, that sports, the popularity of sports will vary greatly by uh, region and country, and also fundamentally the, the value of sports that you get to watch it live. And what because you're talking about a global distribution, what is live somewhere is you know three in the morning somewhere else. So <laughs> it's very difficult for someone to sell you know the, the, the same rights to some um, top-tier competitions in Asia when they're, they're broadcasted in the evening live in the US. You know, the time differences also cause a bit, a bit of a problem there. So there's, there's many things to consider, and that's part of the reason why I think that we have, we're not necessarily going to see a huge commitment from any individual player to acquire any single competition globally, at least not not for the, for the next five years or so. We're about to run out of time, but just to wrap up quickly, I mean, what are your thoughts on what this means for, for the, the, the market vertically basically from from top to bottom i think all almost any news ends up being good news for the for the for the big players but um, <laughs> what do we think it means for uh rights holders across the spectrum that we're seeing this kind of uh consolidation on the media side 
it's uh, it's it's definitely interesting to see. I mean, in the short term, you could assume that they would have uh, slightly deeper pockets to invest into sports rights with to try and get uh, new subscribers. In the long term, again, provided their business works, that that could be very beneficial. Uh, but equally, from the from the other perspective, a lack of competition will inevitably drive the prices down. If BT Sport exited the market completely, let's say tomorrow, and Sky Sports becomes the only bidder for Premier League or the only serious bidder, for lack of a better word, I mean, then then at that point, um, inevitably, the valuations will go down. So consolidation is not necessarily a good thing to, after a certain point. I think, again, what we're seeing at the moment is still still leaves healthy competition in the market. But um, if it gets down to too few players, you could imagine something where um, the, the the prices are just artificially held lower down than they should be. Yeah, I, I think I think rights the tier one sports properties will always drive value. So they will always be able to gain premium media rights values relatively close to what they have been in historically. For the tier two and tier three sports properties underneath those, the market's has always been a challenging uh, landscape for them. And for, for them, the only way they can really navigate it, I think, is the adoption of OTT and direct-to-consumer for themselves to create their own platforms. Now, potentially, as we see big OTT players like what they're building here in this deal, could become a home for some of these Tier 2 and Tier 3 sports properties to be a, almost a carrier for some of their OTT platforms in the same way that they'll be doing that for for the global cycling network and for they'll do that for golf tv and and so on so i see that as an opportunity as we continue to expand and that there's a need for content you know that's that that's an opportunity but for the foreseeable future i don't see tier one sports have i don't think need to be particularly excited about it um, they just need to know that it's the, the landscape shifting yet again and they've got some different people to perhaps talk to to negotiate their deals than they did uh, a few years ago well lots to Lots to keep an eye on over the next few months and over the next few years. But for now, that is it for this Sports Pro podcast. Thank you very much uh, to Tony Maroulis. Thank you very much. And to Nick Meacham. Cheers, Owen. Thanks to all of you for listening as ever. And we will be back with you again very soon. Bye-bye. The Sports Pro podcast is published by Sports Pro Media. The producer is Ed Dixon. 